I often talk about what I think the election was won was with storytelling. Yeah. Uh, there's this quote that I often cite uh, from Yuval Noah Harari, who's uh, written Sapiens and mm-hmm. 21 Lessons for the 21st Century, best-selling author. And he starts that book about the lessons with this quote, uh, humans think in stories rather than in facts, numbers, or equations. And the simpler the story, the better. And when you think of what Trump did, low energy Jeb, mm. Lion Ted, Crooked Hillary, he, he literally told, got the story down to two words. And nobody ever fired back a story at him or had a story, a compelling story of their own to fight that off. Everybody's trying to compete in his lane, and he's going to win that lane every time. If someone wants to compete, they have to compete in a way that, that discombobulates them. Everybody's trying to do what he does, and he's better at causing this chaos than anybody. So let me add on to what I think you're right on on the storytelling side. I'm convinced, and I, I said this during the election, he was the bully bullying the bullies. So the, there was a certain large segment of the Republicans that felt that felt, and you could also say there were, you know, thirty uh, percent of two-time Obama voters in Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Michigan voted for Trump. Thirty percent of people that voted for Obama twice changed and voted for Trump. Why? Well, they felt like they had been beat up. They had felt like no one was listening to them. They'd felt like politicians, you know, I always say it's like Clinton said, I'm going to build the bridge to the 21st century. And everybody went, well, what does that mean? And then Bush came in and said, I'm a uniter, not a divider. And then like a month in the administration, he's fighting the Democrats left and right. And then Obama came in and said, you know, I'm going to part the seas and there's no red, white, there's no black and white, there's red, white, and blue. And then he immediately went out and started fighting with the Republicans and people just went, they got fed up with it. And then this guy was like, I'm not going to like make stuff up. We're going to go. I'm fighting for you. Like, and they believed him. And he was like the bully that had their back. Welcome to Big Questions. This is Cal Fussman. And we're going to go somewhere I don't usually go on this podcast. Into politics. I'm probably the least political person you've ever met. If I was in a party, it would be called the Party of Curiosity. Yeah, I've interviewed presidents, vice presidents, senators, members of the House of Representatives, mayors, and governors over the years, but you never hear me shouting down somebody with ideology or even engaging in political debates. I believe in listening to all sides and trying to find what works best for everybody. And you know what? I think most of America is in the middle. But our entire political process seems to have been hijacked by the extremes. And as you'll hear me tell my guest in this episode, Philip Stutz, sometimes I feel like I'm the thin glue holding this country together. If you know who Philip Stutz is, you're probably a political insider. If you don't, well, let me tell you about him. He's been behind the scenes of many, many political campaigns on the Republican side over the years. Philip has contributed to more than 1,200 election victories, hundreds of them in the House of Representatives, dozens in the Senate, and three presidencies. 
He's the founder of Go Big Media, that's a political media firm, and Win Big Media, a corporate marketing agency. So, we're going to get into how politics has changed over the last 20 years with the inclusion of big data that started with George W. Bush, social media that was shot into the stratosphere by Barack Obama, and branding by who else? Donald Trump. This conversation was recorded a while back before Howard Schultz got into the 2020 presidential race. On the surface, the landscape may have changed with new candidates since we spoke, but the conversation is evergreen. It will help everyone understand what's been going on underneath all the screaming during the last two decades. And I hope it will make people more considerate toward each other's views and look for a way to come together. As you'll hear, Philip is battling a rare, incurable esophageal disease called akalagia. And I found that when people sit next to one another in the waiting area of a hospital emergency room, they understand what they have in common, their humanity. I hope there's some way for our politics to swing to a place when we can feel for one another the way we used to. And what a perfect transition to my sponsors. Because if there's one thing we can all agree on, it's Sportique. Sportique makes the most comfortable hoodies, sweatpants, and t-shirts you will ever put on. Doesn't matter if you're a Republican or a Democrat, conservative or liberal, you're gonna love how soft that fabric feels. Check out what I'm talking about at sportique.com. That's S-P-O-R-T-I-Q-E.com. And use the offer code CAL to get a 20% discount. You know what? If everybody started wearing Sportique, I'll bet the world would be a happier and more confident place because Sportique will bring you comfort. Comfort's going to bring you confidence and that is going to make you happy. And WeWork. Every time I enter WeWork, I see people getting along just fine. There are no arguments at the water cooler. In fact, that water cooler is a very special place because it's generally stocked with slices of pineapple, cantaloupe, and other fruits to give everyone a refreshing taste. It's said that WeWork is a spot where company meets community. For me... It's home away from home. WeWork has office spaces for any of your needs. You want a table with some smart people sitting nearby? WeWork's got it. You need a private office? Got that too. If you have several people working for you and need a large space to fit everyone, WeWork's got your back covered. And if you need podcasting and theater space, just ask. Go to www.we. Dot co slash cal and you got a 20% discount on me. That's going to put you in the middle of a great community. I love my global access pass that gets me in a WeWork wherever I go. And you would too. So we're going to talk politics today without any arguments and allow me to introduce you to Philip Stutz. I'm going to tell you a story from my childhood. I love it. 
four years old, I used to love collecting co coins, mm -hmm. old coins, right? I'm laying on my back on my bed, looking at pennies. And I'm holding this penny up over my face, looking for the date. Mm -hmm. And I think it was like a 1903. And I say, 1903! Was it like an Indian head too, or no? No, no. I think it's just yeah. ordinary penny. But 1903 was 1903. I was a kid. I was four years old. And my mouth opened because of all the excitement. And the penny slipped out of my fingers, went down my mouth, and stuck in my esophagus. Oh, my God. And we waited for the penny to come out. Didn't come out. Went to the doctor, and they had to go in and take it out. Yeah. And left scar tissue. Mm. So about 23 years after that, I am sitting in a hotel in Miami Beach eating a grapefruit. Swallow the pit. Get stuck. Oh, my goodness. Can't eat for a week, waiting for it to go down. Won't go down. Had to have it pulled out. Then, about 10 years after that, I'm training to fight Julio Cesar Chavez to write a story for GQ magazine. And I was eating minestrone soup. Okay. <laughs> minestrone bean went down. Stop. And I can remember the panic of everything else I try to put down, not going down. And they had to pull out the minestrone bean. And so when I heard about your case, I thought, oh my God, this, this is your every day. Yeah. How did it so, is happen? That's the first question. <laughs> How did it happen? That is the first question. They're, they don't know, and the doctors won't. I mean, they, you know, doctors will give you vague answers on anything you ask. So we don't know. Uh, I believe it's autoimmune related, and that's from the doctor that I now work with, which is Dr. Gundry, which we'll get into, I'm sure. But um, he, I think he's going to be on the podcast either next week or a couple weeks down the road. He's, um, he's my doctor now. <laughs> I wrote a, a, a series about my, on Medium, I wrote a whole series about my disease, and uh, the last one I wrote was about a, a little over a year ago, and it was Dr. Gundry Saved My Life, but I'd never met him at that point. But um, we ended up connecting, and what I realized was I just had an incredibly unhealthy gut. I mean, you can look at me right now. I'm skinny as anything, and I've always been skinny. You know, you look good. Yeah, thanks. I appreciate it. But, I mean, I've always been able to eat whatever I want, whenever I want, and I was probably eating a lot of things that were really bad for me, but it didn't affect my weight, so why would I stop? And ultimately you know, my esophagus turned on me, I guess, or, or was fighting back against whatever was coming up. 
the doctors really think I was diagnosed in 2012 after about 18 months of no, no diagnosis and doctors were just throwing their hands up in the air. But they basically said, really, you probably had this a lot longer than you think. Your esophagus I mean, you, was probably working at a 30% level, then a 20% level, oh, then a 5% level, and then it just completely died. They have these tubes, they call them bougies, I think, uh-huh. where they put the tube down uh-huh. your throat uh-huh. and into your esophagus uh-huh. to stretch it out. Yes. They never did that with you? I've had it done um, probably 10 different times. Oh, okay. Yeah. But my esophagus doesn't work. So that is only to try to give me more room for food to go down, if that makes sense. It do- it, it won't allow food to just naturally pass down? No. That- I, my, the, you have nerves and muscles that, you know, basically shoot the food down from your mouth to your stomach, and mine are completely dead, and they'll never work again the rest of my life. Wow. So it's just like a tube. Yes. And things go down. Right. And you just got to hope that the pipe is clear so that it reaches your, your stomach. Is yeah, that uh, it? Eating is a chore. Wow. It's a chore. I mean, I've had 15 minor procedures on my esophagus. I've had three major surgeries on it. It looks like an up, it, it's been shredded and it really looks like an upside down pom pom. That's the only way to describe what it looks like. And so, yeah, I mean, the doctor, like, so. Like two, a little about two and a half years ago, I'm in the Mayo Clinic. That's where the last doctor I went to, and I had surgery. And the first two major surgeries failed. And then this, the third one, it gave me some relief. And I, I mean, this is how crazy it is. I had this disease for six years or five years. I never Googled the disease. I just said, I didn't want to face it. It was um, it, it probably maybe some shame in it. I know that sounds weird. Shame? Yeah. I, I carry a lot of shame. In my past, I think I carry a lot of shame. So I was like, I was like, I have this incurable disease and I didn't want to tell people or, and I didn't but do it. But it's something that is with you every day, every meal. Every, every minute and, of every and day. And you're working in politics. So you're yeah. around people all the time. All the time. You're not eating alone. Or are no, you? I and, and that's a real. I, mean, I hadn't thought about that. I would eat alone. You would, yeah, and it affected relationships. It affected a lot of relationships. I I would just prefer not to bother with it, like in front of people, because it's a chore, right? And so, the, I'm in the doctor's office, and this is like in August of seventeen, and the or sixteen, and the doctor base, and I said, "What's the long term, you know, prognosis here?" I mean, I know that my esophagus isn't going to work again, and he said, "Philip, this last surgery is the last one you'll ever have." And after that, we're just going to have to remove your esophagus, have an esophagectomy. And you're most likely going to have a feeding tube for the rest of your life. And I went, what? Now, five years I had this disease. This is news to me. This is how ignorant I am. And, and I went, what? And he goes, yeah. And I said, well, what's the timeline? He said, well, the last surgery, they pulled my esophagus straight. They cut 25% of my stomach out. They wrapped it around. They stapled it all together. And one day, that wrap will come undone. And it could be in five years. It could be in 10 years. Some people go 15 years. But it's going to come undone. And at that point, it's kind of a different situation for me. And I remember in the sitting in the doctor's office and saying, there's got to be something else. And he, as I was walking out, he pats me on the back and says, Philip, your disease is what it is. Take your medications. Wait, by the way, the medications have long-term dementia effects. Oh, man. But they work in the short run. And he said, take your medications. We'll see you in six months. And he patted me on the back. And 
I drove home from the Mayo Clinic that day, and I said, I don't accept this. I, I, I don't know what that means, but I, something has to change. And that was really the start of this Oh, man, crazy, Dr. Gundry is your man. Well, and, and, and a lot of other things now so that we can get into. But, it, yeah, I mean, like, so I mean, I'm in L.A. right now. Right. And I'm attending Peter Diamandis as a mastermind called the Abundance 360 Conference. And I've been going for years. And two years ago at this conference, he gets up on stage and he says, everybody pull out your notebook and write down a moonshot. What's your moonshot? Moonshot being... Something that people say is impossible that you, you know, want to make possible. And you want to make possible and soon. And I was at a business conference. And everybody's writing their moonshots, how far they want to take their business and grow their business. And, I, and this is after this Mayo Clinic visit. And I wrote down in my notebook, I'll find a cure to this disease in five years. And the beauty of being an entrepreneur is how stupid and ignorant you are. But that's that's the beauty of it. Because every doctor, there's a rare disease. There's no money in rare diseases, like researched for right, cures. Right. So he one of the things that Diamandis also said was write down something you'll do immediately after this conference to get some momentum. So I wrote an article and it appeared in Inc. magazine and I laid out and this is when the shame lifted off of me. Oh okay. so I kind of put it out there that I had this moonshot to find a cure in five years of a disease that was incurable. This is when the woman in Los Angeles saw it? Okay. And she saw the article and reached out and said, what are you talking about? And I said, yeah, I mean, I don't know. I got to find a cure, you know. And I'd re I had looked up, there, there had been some early work to try to find a cure for this disease in like the late 90s where people said stem cells could be possible. So I, was, I just 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 yelled it out. Was he stem cells? I don't know what that meant, you know? <laughs> and so she said, well, let me call some doctors and that I know that work on this disease. And she calls me back like a week later and she says, look, I found this doctor at Johns Hopkins and he has been working on this disease for 25 years. And he too thinks that stem cells could be a cure one day. You should talk to him. And so she put me in touch with him. And that was literally six weeks after I announced the, <laughs> the moonshot. And we have gone on this crazy ride. This doctor and I, we put a team of doctors around me. Peter Diamandis has come in and, and, and introduced me to doctors. And, and we've bolted forward. And we're about to start the first ever one-man clinical trial uh, it's not been done on animals. It's not been done on people where they're going to extract stem cells out of my calf muscle, grow them, and then they will insert them into my esophagus to try to regenerate the muscles in the nerves. Oh, man. Yeah. And that, it was supposed to start in January, but there's some approval that didn't get done. So we're, it's um, hopefully in, in April. Congratulations, well, man. You're going to the moon. We're, we're taking a <laughs> shot. It's a shot. But here's the deal. If it doesn't work, that's okay. I'll go to plan B. I don't know what that is, but I'll figure it out. And, and the, the truth of the matter, Cal, is that this disease is the best thing that ever happened to me. You know what? I often hear people say that when they have cancer mm -hmm. because it taught them to appreciate everything that was around them. They weren't seeing the world as vividly as they do when they understand yeah. The concept of TR, time remaining. Mm -hmm. Is that the same case? Or? It is. I mean, I, I think it woke me up. It woke me up and it said, 
you know, I have to be better. I had to find my true purpose in life. And frankly, uh, I probably wasn't a very good person before the disease. I probably wasn't a very good father uh, or a husband. Uh, and it wasn't like I was catting around or anything like that. I just was uh, probably, I was one of those people that just blamed everybody on everything. And I was always right and that kind of person. And the disease forced me to realize that I, I don't have that much time and I need to be. And so I, I always say at 40 years old, I'm 44 now, I, I, had, I realized I had to rewire my entire my entire belief system, my entire wiring, everything about whatever I'd ever acted on was wrong. And I had to change or I wasn't going to have a marriage and I was going to have a broken family and my business, you know, wasn't where I needed it to be four years ago. It is now. But I mean, like all of those things, like I feel, I feel very blessed, very purpose-driven. I feel every day is a complete blessing and I work really hard to try to just be a better person. And I screw up a lot still. I mean, I'm a mess I'm, all the time, but uh, it is well, something I'm, I'm striving I'm looking at your book on. here, Fire Them Now, <laughs> and there's a lot of smart things in there. Yeah. So yeah. some intelligence has come along or wisdom has come along the way. Well, I created uh, two startup marketing agencies, a political and a corporate marketing agency. And we have the values are two things. That's a it's, uh, you know, give more than you take and always be growing. And the reason I created those two was because I didn't do that for my entire life until I created the companies. And I said, that's what I'm striving to be. Okay. Let, let's go back to the beginning here. Was there a moment when you were seven years old <laughs> when you thought to yourself, you know what? Politics. Yeah, I like politics. Because... I know you went in that direction. How did it happen? Yeah, I, I always loved politics and college football. Like I'm from so, Alabama. Like right. I went to the University of Alabama. I didn't. I literally chose my college because I liked college. That was my college football team. That's that's literally the reason I went to college. So, <laughs> I and I love good reason if you're in Alabama. Yeah. Well, ex yeah. Except for this past season, but yes. Uh, but look, look at that, man! You have an unbelievable <laughs> run. I know, I know, I know. Anyway. Oh man! Uh, but I love. You got spoiled, I brother. Know. Okay. But I went went into politics to work in politics, not run in politics. And um, you know, I cannot describe it. it is a drug to work in politics. But like when you were in junior high school, were you in the student? No. No. So it, it wasn't back then. Mm -mm. I mean, I I followed it, right? but I I I didn't. I don't know. I, it wasn't my thing. I wasn't in, you know, like uh, the college political groups. I didn't do anything so until I was 22, and I went. I need to figure what else. What I'm going to do. Need a job. Yeah, and uh, I ended up working on a political or a presidential uh, political convention out in San Diego. And here I am, this Alabama kid, never been to California, and I went out to this convention uh, in 1996, and I. I was, in fact, you know, I I'm met Larry King there. Of, and, wow, I'm trying to think, 96, so that's Clinton? It was and, uh, and Dole, Dole mm -hmm. right, Bob Dole. Yeah, and um, I literally was around all these politicians. I saw the people that worked for them, how passionate they were, and I just said, man, I want to be a part of that. And so then it just kind of created the space, and I moved to D.C. after that and started working on political campaigns. What was your first campaign? Dan Quayle for president. 
Dan Quayle for president. president. Here's a great thing. Oh, man. <laughs> the campaign count was Quayle 2000, but we never made it out of 99. <laughs> It was, you know what? Hey, he was vice president. He was vice president. I had, listen, my dad wasn't a big campaign contributor. I didn't have any contacts. I started in politics without anybody helping. Not that that's, I mean, I'm not saying like I'm anything, like I just didn't have any. Like everybody in that day and age had their daddy knew George W. Bush or George W. or George H.W. Bush. I didn't have anything like that. So I had to create my own path. That meant I didn't have as many opportunities early in my career. But the cool thing was I got to sit in the office next to the former vice president at 24, 25 years old. And I got to know him. I had to play golf with him. And I mean, it was, it's a, it's a well, heady let, time. Let it was me ask cool. you because there's sort of a stereotype mm. of, of Dan Quayle mm-hmm. it's, as like not the brightest bulb on the, on the block. Uh, you know, and you can remember that uh, when he was running for vice president against Lloyd Bankston, mm-hmm. uh, there was a brutal line mm-hmm. uh, where Bankston basically said, you're not John F. Kennedy, and kind of just reduced him to an oil slick in front of the country. Maybe that was really unfair. I, I, I don't know. I never met him. What yeah. kind of guy was he? A great guy. Great guy. He was probably flighty, like a little all over the place. Thus, you kind of miss your details by that, you know? But look, it was a great experience for me. I was, yeah, again, young guy trying to make my way and and working in the behind the scenes in politics and had the opportunity to move to Arizona and make zero dollars and work seven days a week and for a guy that had no chance at winning, and I was blessed to do it. Wow. You know, I'm just thinking how... One misstep in politics can basically brand you for life, like Gerald Ford Mm. tripping on steps, and the next thing you know, he played football without a helmet. (laughs) It, it, It never seems to leave. And, you know, listening to you talk about Dan Quayle, I'm wondering, you know, what if I hung around with this guy for a week without knowing anything, what would I think? Probably something very different from the stereotype. Isn't that everything in life? And it's kind of sad that the society is where it is right now. Like, my wife is a liberal Democrat. (laughs) Oh, no. I don't know if we would have been able to date if we had met today rather than meeting back in 2006 or whatever. Like, she doesn't care what my politics are, and I don't care what she is. In fact, we talk sometimes about things that we don't agree on and we listen to each other. I I know that sounds like hokey, but it's true. Like I love learning from people. I don't care whether people are left or right, but we're living in a world now where you got to pick a side, man, or you're in deep trouble and it's a shame. Well, this here's a good place to go because I often feel like I am at dead center in the Mm -hmm. country. Like, the thin glue holding the whole sure. country together. And I was talking to Seth Godin, the marketing guru, about this. And, and I was saying to him that, man, if only there was a way to have the center reach out and grab all of the people who really are in the center, 
but have been pushed to the extremes. And he said, Cal, you'll never do it because there's just no juice in the center. <laughs> just no juice. Seth is like the most brilliant, quotable person ever. Like, I, you know, his daily emails are, ins- are insanely good. Um, he's right. I mean, I, my politics are I don't care about social issues, and I'm a libertarian more than anything else. I just want you know, people out of my way. Um, I think if you got everybody in a room, they'd be pretty close to that, even on the right and the left. Like, there are extremes on the right and the left. Take those out. But the vast majority, I guarantee we all agree on about 75 to 80% this of everything. This is what drives me crazy, <laughs> because it's almost like the country's been hijacked by the extremes. Yes. Yeah. And there's not that many of them. There's more of us. But they're louder. Well, because we're in the center. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> there's no the mushy, juice in the, the center, the man. mushy middle. <laughs> I don't, I, I'm, I'm waiting for somebody to figure out a way to make the center as dynamic as the extremes. Mm-hmm. But Seth told me it's impossible, so... Yeah. I mean, they tried this a couple of years ago with a, an organization called No Labels. Have you heard of it? No. There that, you go. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I remember back in the 70s when uh, John Anderson ran for president as kind of an independent and didn't work for him either. Yeah. So I think Howard Schultz, the uh, Starbucks CEO, is looking at trying to run as an independent. I think... Um, Mayor Bloomberg out of New York is looking to run as an independent. So, I mean, listen, here's my thing. It's part of what we talk about in the marketing today, but everything's being disrupted. Everything. And in, and I always say in politics, we, we're the trendsetters. In 2016, it was the most disruptive moment in, in, in the history of our American politics. Okay, tell me if I was wrong then. I announced at the time at Larry King's breakfast table that this was all about the two-party system folding, and it, it, yeah. we were going to have multiple parties. Right? Do you see that coming? Well, I'll, t- I'll tell. I'll look at it a little differently because I look at it from the inside, so it's hard to. I'm, I'm blinded in a way, but I will tell you this: I get this question all the time. Do you work only for Republicans? You know, and I you, said, you, you work. You've worked on both sides, right? No, I have worked. I've worked on Democratic issues, but never a Democratic candidate. Okay, you have to in our business. You sort of have to ethically choose a side. But I don't know if that's going to happen in about ten years. I, I I think we're in such a crazy disruptive moment. I think it'll move away from. I don't think people really care about parties as much as they care about the candidate and what they stand for. And so I definitely see this cross pollination between people that work on. Both sides of that. I work on uh, education issues that are bipartisan, healthcare issues that are bipartisan. I work on environmental issues that are bipartisan to help those issues advance, you know, with their bills in Congress. We're going to try to get them into laws. But I have to choose a side when it comes to a candidate. And I don't think in 10 years that that will actually be the ethical standard anymore. You know, you mentioned healthcare. This is a question that's come up at the breakfast table. If they hadn't used the name Obama on in Obamacare, would it have been treated completely different? Is it, It's just so offensive to people on the right. They just hate Obama. So whatever has his name on it, even if it's good, they're just not going to accept. 
Well, yeah, they branded it proper from a marketing standpoint. Take take out whether they, what was right and wrong, but from a marketing standpoint, it was brilliant branding because you were going to offend fifty percent of the people by putting his name on it. Well, it it just seems it seems to me that if we could keep the names off and just try and have the policy out there that's the best for everybody, we'd all be happier. Mm-hmm. But that ain't happening. Huh? Well, because the two sides say one's, you know, you need to have more of a private sector approach and one's a public sector approach. And that's not going to change. I mean, th those views are not going to change. So I just don't, I mean, I don't know. I mean, so the private sector approach people said, let's label it Obamacare. Thus it got labeled and branded and, you know, but ultimately they didn't win the argument. It's in place. It, it is in place. It's And then voted on by conservative justice. That was the difference um, in whether it passed you know, through the Supreme Court. So ultimately they didn't win. Do you have a moment, a most cherished moment in politics where you won? I, I don't know. I've never been a political guy. Yeah. So I don't know what you would feel after spending 20 hours a day working on a campaign and then winning. Uh, the worst is the losing. Because <laughs> when, you, when you did, there was a three-year period, um, I think 2000 to, to the end of 2002, where I had, or maybe it was 2001 to 2003, but I had basically 20 days off in three years total. And one of those campaigns was I was working in South Dakota for a year uh, for John Thune's U.S. Senate race in 2002. He lost by 524 votes at a 334,000 cast. Oh, man. That was a tough one. Because at that point, any little thing you did won the election for Johnson, who was the Democratic senator. And anything we did was the difference. <laughs> you know, you never know. I mean, that's oh, how you do man. it. Those are the worst. Um, the 2004, I was the first ever Republican Party get out the vote director, and we won the reelect for Bush. And so that was a crazy, rewarding night. But I would say that even beyond that, there was probably a a moment that I believe I, I never talked about it because I was thinking about when I was talking to you today and I was like, you know, I've never talked about this, this moment. And, uh, it was in 2000, it was actually 18 years ago, the beginning of February, Bush had just been sworn into office. It was 2001. And I was working for the secretary of education, Rod Page. And I was basically his political aide at that moment in the early in the Bush administration. And Political aides, it, like it's just so typical DC. It 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 is all ego and power. They, people don't. It's not about money. Everybody thinks you know all these people make all this money. It's really all ego and power. And here I am, like the right hand man at the moment to the Secretary of Education. And I was twenty five at the time, and you know thought I was pretty badass. And so he comes to me, he says, "Hey, we've got to go to the meeting at the White House today." And so I said, "Oh, great." So we went over to the White House and we go to the West Wing and we go into the Roosevelt Room or the West Wing and the president comes in and at the table is all these CEOs, Carly Fiorina, Hewlett Packard and the CEO of AT&T and, and we're, he, the president lays out his strategy to, for No Child Left Behind, which was an education plan he was putting together. And I'm in this meeting. I, it, was, it was a cool moment, right? 
And he's talking about the strategy they're going to unveil and all this stuff. And I'm like, that is, this is amazing. Now, I'm having no input in this, by the way. I'm just like a bystander. And then when it's over, the president says, "We're going. I'm going to unveil part of this strategy at this school in Washington, D.C. I'm going to go read to the kids. And he looks at Secretary Page and says, you know, why don't y'all bump, come with me? And so here I am now in the presidential motorcade driving out to the school. And again, people are waving to me from the street like I'm in some parade, you know. And I'm, again, I haven't done anything, right? But it was pretty awesome, right? One of the bucket list things I think people should have in life is to be in a presidential motorcade. And we get to the school, and we get out of the car, and we're walking down the hallway of the school. And it's the president, it's the secretary of education, and I'm like two feet behind him. And I hear the president tell Secretary Page, hey, Rod, his name's Rod Page. Hey, Rod, they were good friends. How's everything going so far in the administration? You doing okay? You need anything? He goes, yeah, 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 things are great. He goes, it's crazy. When you become secretary, and he pulls his thumb out like he's uh, hitchhiking, and he points it at me, he goes, you get one of these when you come to D.C. <laughs> oh, and I said, that was the moment that I knew I couldn't stay in that role because <laughs> I didn't want to be one of those, right? Yeah. And so I just knew, as cool a moment as that is, like I had to figure out a way to, to figure out what I really wanted to do. And the, about a year later, I started working on the reelect for President Bush. And that was the first time that real data was brought into a political campaign, that we, we were doing crazy amount of work with data to understand voters and turn them out. And at the time, it was the, it was the most advanced sort of marketing that had ever happened in a political campaign until Obama. And then Obama married the data with, with social CNN, media, yeah. which had never been done before. And that was the greatest marketing political campaign ever done until eight years later. Trump. Trump, who married branding and data and social media all together. And then I just said, man, like, why aren't businesses taking this approach? Why are we leading from a political standpoint? Why are we leading in the way we look at innovation and data and all this in our marketing? And it dawned on me that we have election day. So we're forced. We have a scorecard. We have, we're forced to either win or lose, and our records are public. And so it forces us to constantly be innovating, constantly, all the time, in the way we run marketing campaigns. Well, you know, it's interesting in that often we think of politics as being behind business in some ways. This is a quote from Ronald Reagan. It says something like, the smartest people are not in politics because if they were, businesses would hire them away. <laughs> <laughs> but what, what you're telling me is actually it's the politics that is out in front of everything. I think it started in 2004 when we in that campaign approached in the most, it was the most innovative thing. I remember walking in the first meeting ever on the campaign where they introduced that they were marrying consumer data into voter data and in order to target people based on what they cared about. Right, and let's remember in 2000, the votes came down to only a few votes in Florida who was gonna be the president. I, I was part of that recount team. You so, were? Yeah, so wow. I remember it really well. What was it like when 
you won. In 2000? Yeah. Oh, man. I was in an airport coming back from the recount and watched Al Gore give his concession speech, you know, in an airport bar. And it was relieved because nobody had slept from weeks while this thing had gone on. And so it was, um, it was nuts. Now you can eat, you were able to eat. Your esophagus was. I didn't have any problems back then. Okay. Yeah. It's just been the last, you know, seven, eight, nine years. Wow. So what have you learned from this culture of you win or you lose, which most of us, you only see that say in sports where everybody's watching the game. It has a final score. We go home. Politics, the game is a little longer. But most of us aren't really judged that way. We, ha- we have jobs. If things don't go well, we still go back in the next yeah. day. What does that give you? Well, you, you learn to live with uncertainty, which I think most people, all they really crave, whether it's work or life, is certainty. Is that one of the reasons that we tend to see politicians as, and this certainly doesn't apply to Trump, but not wanting to rock the boat to, to stay in this, stay in a certain place? Yeah. Well, they want to protect their power, right? But um, you know, I, listen. I, what I think is so amazing about what we do is that we have election day. I have a scorecard. Like every election I do, there's a government database that tells everybody in the world what races we're working on, uh, how much money we made, uh, what the campaign spent money on. And so it's like, it's very transparent. And so what happens, do you think in my industry, if I'm working for a political candidate and we lose, what do you think my competitors do the next time we go out and like pitch against them, against another, you know, trying to land a political client? You know what? I don't know. What do they they do? They cut my legs out from under me. So it's, you got to win in this business. Like how would they cut your... Well, did you see that race he worked on uh, last year? This is your opponent, right? Or, or yeah, it could it, be in a primary. It could, yeah, mostly in right. a primary is what I'm talking about. But they'll look. Everybody knows our record, so we we have to win. I mean, like I'll, I when I when I give speeches, I always say like in the last three years, I've worked with and worked with 196 startups that went number one in their market, except they were <laughs> they were politicians. <laughs> That's an interesting way of looking at well, it. Well, they are. They start at zero. They right. don't raise. They're not all like. Trump or whatever. They're not, they don't self-fund most of them. They start with zero money and zero name ID or a little bit of brand. And you got to raise money. You got to test things. You got to, it's like a startup company. You got to raise the money, except in our business, you spend it all in nine months. You raise millions and spend it all. What was it like watching Trump ascend during the last campaign because it, was, it had to be completely different from anything you'd ever seen before. Yeah, uh, two perspectives. One, I was following the patterns of, of every other campaign I'd seen for over 20 years. So I just didn't think, <laughs> I didn't think, like, I just kept saying, no, there's no way, like, you know, and it just kept happening. Where were you working at the time? We did, we were doing a bunch of campaigns for on the primary for, we worked for other candidates, um, my company, and then um, we ended up folding in and helping him on a super PAC at the very end of the campaign. 
Okay, so you don't name them once that happens? Oh, I'm or? happy to. Yeah. yeah, or for Bobby Jindal, he ran. We did some work for Ted Cruz and the Super PAC he ran. We did some work for uh, Marco Rubio. Um, and and so we were involved, um, not with Trump initially. Well, here, here's what, what gets me. And I, I often talk about what I think the election was won was with storytelling. Yeah. Uh, there's this quote that I often cite uh, from Yuval Noah Harari, he's uh, written Sapiens and mm -hmm. uh, 21 Lessons for the 21st Century, best-selling author. And he starts that book about the lessons with this quote, uh, humans think in stories rather than in facts, numbers, or equations. And the simpler the story, the better. And when you think of what Trump did, low energy Jeb, mm. Lion Ted, Crooked Hillary. He he literally told, got the story down to two words, and nobody ever fired back a story at him or had a story, a compelling story of their own, to fight that off. Everybody's trying to compete in his lane, and he's going to win that lane every time. They, if someone wants to compete, they have to compete in a way that that discombobulates them. But other, everybody's trying to do what he does, and he's. <laughs> better at causing this chaos than anybody. So the other thing, let me add on to what I think you're right on, on the storytelling side. I'm convinced, and I thought about, I said this during the election, he was the bully bullying the bullies. So the, there was a certain large segment of the Republicans that felt, that felt, uh, and you could also say there were, you know, 30% uh, of Two-time Obama voters in Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Michigan voted for Trump. 30% of people that voted for Obama twice changed and voted for Trump. Why? Well, they felt like they had been beat up. They had felt like no one was listening to them. They had felt like politicians. You know, I always say it's like Clinton said, I'm going to build the bridge to the 21st century. And everybody went, well, what does that mean? And then Bush came in and said, I'm a uniter, not a divider. And then like a month in the administration, he's fighting the Democrats left and right. And then Obama came in and said, you know, I'm going to part the seas. And there's no red, white, there's no black and white. There's red, white, and blue. And then he immediately went out and started fighting with the Republicans. And people just went, they got fed up with it. And then this guy was like, I'm not going to like make stuff up. We're going to go, I'm fighting for you. Like, and they believed him. And he was like the bully that had their back. He's like, get behind me. I'm going to bully these people that are always shouting you down. You can see this now with the political correctness in society now and the social media that jumps on, some, on, any, on something without any context, without knowing anything, and they'll jump down, you know, and ruin someone's life over it. And I think that that's, they feel like he's got their back. And that was a big component. So when he would tell these stories to those people, about we're going to win, we're going to do this, we're going to do this. Like, they loved it. They they fed off of it. And he knew how to tap into that. And when you were watching this, w were you just shaking your head in wonder, saying, how is he getting them to go along? Or could you see it just moving in the direction that it moved in? Yeah, I just kept thinking. And you know, Cal, I have to be honest, because I went on national TV about 30 times during the campaign and said, I don't think he can get there. And I thought there'd be a brokered convention. I did think Cruz would come in, but he kept just overpowering everybody. 
on the Republican side. And it was funny because, you know, people that I knew that worked for Hillary were like, well, this is great. Like, that's what they wanted. They wanted Trump. Oh, man. Yeah. Well, I mean, you'd be careful what you wish for. Yeah, was, uh, I didn't know that. I didn't know that, that that's what they wanted. Sure, they thought there was this ceiling with him. And, oh, the 35%. Yeah, and, and you know, we talked about this earlier, but there's this hidden support for Trump that pollsters don't, like, the media pollsters never, they always give you the straight line, but everybody that works behind the scenes in politics knows that there's a hidden 2 to 4% bump on Trump because people are afraid to say that they support President Trump. And so they just won't say it. And therefore, the polls are skewed just by a point or two or three or four, depending on who they're surveying. How much do you think storytelling will play a role in the next election? It depends on who the Democrat is. I mean, that's the thing. It's, that's, that's the most fascinating thing to me. You're, you, you're, you can see the pattern they're going to have 20 candidates like we had 20 candidates right, in 16. Right, yeah. That got people shouting at each other that wouldn't act certain ways. Then you got people um, like a Cory Booker who has been grooming himself to be president forever and ever, but he's taking all this Wall Street money. How does that play? Now you've got all these female candidates. Kamala who, Harris. Yeah, and um, and Warren, and like, and they're credible, and they're running left. So how do they... You know, how is that dynamic? Do the, do the white guys who want to run, are they kind of like, well, I can't run this time because it's like time for the woman. Like, I don't know. And I think they're going to have a huge civil war in that party, like we did in the Republican Party for the last five years. And it's going to be interesting to see what, what the effect is. Do you think that whatever is going on in the Mueller investigation is going to play out pretty soon? Or are we just going to live in this day after day after day? And then, you, and then you know, we get close to 2020, we'll just have the election. I don't know. I just don't know. I, I, I feel like there'll be a dump at some point. They'll, they'll dump everything out. You can tell with all the indictments that they're trying to get closer and closer and closer. Yeah. They must not be where they need to be yet. Otherwise, they would come out. I mean, they're obviously going after the president. So, but, and they keep indicting people around him, but they haven't, haven't closed this thing. So I just don't, I mean, who knows? I mean, really, I have no idea. Is this the most fascinating time in politics that, that you've seen? It's, it's the most different. It, I guess it could be fascinating. It's scary because I just feel like there's just so much anger on both sides. I don't know. It's I don't know. I, I look at it and it it's like I just people aren't given the benefit of the doubt. Deals aren't being made anymore. People are holding their grounds because they're so scared of the mob on both sides. And and it's it it it's worrisome to me. Well, is that the opening for third and fourth party so that there isn't this one-on-one -on -one confrontation? Right. And people will have to work together in order to get a majority. I, it could be. It could be. I, there's, again, let me just say this. I don't care if it's in the economy or it's in politics, but we are in a very disruptive moment in our world right now. We're in a very disruptive moment. You know, Trump... 
election should stand out. People should see that and understand that there's some sort of beneath-the-surface earthquake going on. And, you know, I'm at this conference right now, and it's all about technology. It's all about the displacement. It's all about how AI will replace 40% of jobs and how businesses aren't adapting to the change that's coming in the next 10 years in the economy. And we're just seeing this everywhere right now. And I think people, because they want they want their certainty, <laughs> aren't adapting. They're not changing. They're not innovating. And all this disruption's coming, and it's scaring people. And I think the this is the nature of why people are so worked up right now, because they're scared. What will happen to storytelling in the AI world? Will Well, I don't know. I mean, I thought we looked at this a little bit like, you know, are there going to be VR glasses that you can jump in and all of a sudden you're at the rally? You know, the rally for the presidential candidate? Which is kind of cool. Like You oh, are there. Yeah, you're literally on the front row watching it. I mean, you're already doing that with NBA games right now. You know, you can sit on the front row with a VR headset. I never heard that, but oh yeah, I have to look into it. Yeah, and um, you can have courtside seats. As the game's going live? Yeah. So will that be a thing? Now, I think about it from the marketer's perspective. It's like, ooh, how do we, how do we not monetize that, but like, do you charge for that, right? What do, do people have to pay a premium to like enter into the, be on stage with the candidate, you know, on their VR headset? Like, I don't know. So I don't think the stories and the story, people telling stories will ever go away. I think this is the one connection that won't change with all of us. I really don't. That's the one thing we have to have. You know, I'm so happy to hear you say this. And it, it's the perfect segue mm. because I just did a storytelling conference. I was showing people how to tell stories, businesses, because I saw that businesses were having a hard time yes. telling their stories. And I did this one exercise where I had, uh, it was a conference of CEOs, and they each had to describe a problem that they wanted solved. And they had a, a few minutes to do it. And then the person who was listening uh, couldn't give them solutions. They could only ask questions to help them come to the solution. And it, it, it goes like four or five minutes. Yeah. And so I get done with the five minutes and one of the CEOs looks up and he said, oh, I still haven't finished the problem yet. And the simpler the story, the better. Right. And the next time we did the exercise, he had done it in half the time and he looked over at me and said, nailed it. But I noticed that a lot, these were CEOs and a lot of them had trouble telling their business's story. It's crazy. It's crazy. And I, I know this is what I'm screaming and hollering about with with the businesses we work with. Like they come in and they say, well, we, you know, they, they we ran some Facebook ads and i'm like well, what did you say? <laughs> what did you say what was the story right? behind there was nothing there was no story they just got they bought into somebody something someone was selling them like the way we do it is more maybe more scientific like we will go out and with a company we'll take their their customer base and we'll overlay it on thousands of points of data and then we can ascertain what their customers think and feel 
and what they're purchasing, what motivates their purchasing decisions. And then we can devise marketing campaigns that say, how do we make a connection? That How do you talk to them in the way they want to be talked to? Because you're in their gut. And you, you know. You yeah. know what they're thinking. You know this because yeah. you talk to all these CEOs. They just want to talk about their companies because they're right. proud of them. Right. They put their blood, sweat, and tears in them. But they're not thinking, well, what is this about your consumer customer. thing? <laughs> yeah. And yeah. so we always try to like dig down and try to understand that and then devise that. You said something once, um, and it was, uh, was it Quincy Jones when he does a book signing? Right. He sits there, and it could take a six, take six hours, but he will have, basically, he'll make a personal connection with every single person. Correct. It's brilliant. That is what the world should be. We've moved away from it. Every marketer out there right now says, hey, I have this phone in front of my face, so you've got to run all these ads because that's where the eyeballs are. And I think it's completely the opposite. I believe you've got to build connections with people through stories, telling, through interactions, through relationships, through ways that make people feel good. And then you use your marketing on digital platforms or whatever to reinforce that connection and that relationship. And so, and, and I just think people, if, if businesses can understand that everybody's running in one direction right now, throw a bunch of ads up on digital platforms and hope it works instead of, build connections with your customers in the way they want to understand and feel like, cause we do this in politics. We, oh, we think man. about I it. Just, uh, yeah. This I, is how we me, do right? things. Yeah. This is the voter. Right. I love, I, politicians are great. I love the voter. So what, <laughs> and, and Cal, what we always do wow. is we take a poll in a political campaign and we find out what the voters care about. And then I'll go to the politician and I'll say, what do you care about? And she or he will say, well, I care about these 10 things. And I go, great. The voters only care about two of them. We're only going to talk about those two. Right? It's an alignment. It's not, he does, that, that politician isn't just making something up. They care about those things. The, the voters care about those things. That's where we found alignment. And so I try to tell, this is what we <laughs> try to tell businesses. Like, try to find where they care, what you care about together what your product and service provides that they love and reinforce that over and over again. We just did, um, or we're doing work right now for a supplement company and they'd been running a bunch of ads and they built their company, but it wasn't growing this fast enough. And so what we found was their customers were their best advocates. Their customers resold more than just going out and trying to find new customers. Wow. Because they had a connection with the product. So now we're going to devise an entire campaign around, around the customers, the customers and incentivize them to tell their friends and family. They're the best salesperson for that company. But so many marketers or businesses go, oh, we just got to run a bunch of ads and hope it works. And so though, I, I don't, I just think differently because I've always been rooted in, I've got to understand what the voters think. And when I applied that to businesses, we've seen just unbelievable growth for businesses. I, you know, I've never made that full connection till this conversation. Mm-hmm. If the storyteller looked at themselves as the candidate or the, the campaign, mm-hmm. of course, they better know what the voter wants. Right. It's so, as so, simple as that. I'll give you a, a, a real example. So we have another company, and they had built this company, and it hadn't, it had stopped growing, and they'd spent tons, millions of dollars in marketing, and had nothing. So they came to us, and we did this 
research and data and psychological profiles of their customers. And they had run these campaigns on, on discounts. Every campaign they'd run was buy this, buy this product or service, you know, discounts, discounts. And it didn't work. It worked when the economy was bad, but it didn't work anymore. And what we found was their customers wanted to buy in to a higher standard product. So saying discounts was actually working against Pushing them. Pushing against them, right. The other thing was they, they were highly educated customer base, making over $50,000 a year, and they contributed to charities and were very involved in their community. This was a family-owned business that we're working with. They had never told the story about it. It was a generational business. So when we go back to storytelling, my point is, is like, if we tell the story of this family that they started this company at nothing and they built it and they're part of the community, they're not a big chain, the customer is going to buy into that story. If you'd say our product has a higher standard because they have green products and higher standard products, they just never marketed them. And you combine that with the story of their family, we've seen massive growth in this company since that happened. It's all about storytelling. But so many businesses have gotten away from that because they think there's got to be some digital marketing tactic that they've got to employ. And I only know this because all we ever do in politics is tell stories. Whoa. It's really, this is a pivotal moment in my life when <laughs> I, I, it, it, it may seem uh-huh. like, come on, Cal, really? Yeah. I'm telling you, I gave this conference, there was like 18 CEOs in the room and it got near perfect scores. I just, I just got an email, I'll show you. It said like, these scores were unheard of. And I felt coming out of that little conference, it was half a day, like Larry King did when he did his first CNN show. He had Mario Cuomo on. It was at a little studio in a basement somewhere in Washington. They didn't even have cable hookup in Washington at the time. You couldn't watch the show in D.C. when he did his first show. It was out in Atlanta or other places, but not in D.C. But he saw that microphone on the table and he felt the conversation with Governor Cuomo and he walked out of here and out of there and he said, this is going to work. And that's how I felt walking out of that little conference. It was the first time I'd ever done it, Mm. but I just saw everything that you're telling me. Mm. And you almost feel a feeling for these business people oh. who are throwing their heart and soul into doing this right. and they don't know how to tell a story. Right. That connects. That connects, right. Well, if you can't connect, then it ain't, it ain't a story. It's the connection that makes it a story. Otherwise, you're just talking to yourself. So the a couple of years ago, I was kind of doing the pundit thing on TV. And I got asked to go on Fox Business, the Maria Bartiromo show on Fox Business. And I get in, usually they send you the topic you're going to talk about the day before. And I did not get it. And I kept emailing. I'm like, hey, where's the topics? And they didn't email. And I had to be there at five in the morning. So that means you're getting up at like 3.30, which is just like the worst feeling ever. And then you're like, I don't know what, I'm going on national TV, live TV. What am I supposed to do here? And I get to the studio and 
I'm in the green room and the producer runs in and says, hey, by the way, your five minute segment. No, nah, nah, we're not doing that. You're actually going to co-host the show what? this morning. <laughs> yeah. Do you mind? And I, Cal, you're a question asker. I'm not. Um, and they said, oh, and Broderham is not here. It's Sandra Smith. And uh, anyway, uh, you, we got five minutes. We need to bring you on in. And I'm like, what? <laughs> And and I get in, and they put the earpiece in. The producer, uh, Philip, can you uh, hear me? Yep. Uh, all right. So in the A block, we've got uh, famed investor Jim Rogers talking about the Greece bailout situation. And um, make your make your. Then and then I'm looking at the clock, and it says ten, nine, eight. Like we're going. You can make your question smart. I have I've not I've never asked. I don't know anything about the bailouts. Like. And I'm like, what? And 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 I and I'm like, and then they got the second uh, B block, you know. Again, it's like the clocks went down. The B block's going to be about Jeff Sessions and marijuana. And I'm like, what? <laughs> what am I supposed to do here? And then I hear Sandra Smith, who's hosting that day. She starts barking at the producer, like, I'm not talking about that today. Like, and I'm like, what is going on? And they go, man, we're live. And then Jim Rogers comes on, and that was my moment. And I said. This is my moment. I got to figure it out. And I say this because it is the moment in time right now, whether you are a business owner, you know, it, this is it. The world is changing. Oh, man. This is their moment. You can either say, what the hell? Or you can say, I got this. And my question ultimately is, how many marketing campaigns do you need to run and, and, and pay a dumb tax on if you're a business owner? How many? And that's why I wrote the book, because I was like, you don't have to be this way. You can be an outlier and do things totally different and have unbelievable success. And that's what businesses are lacking more than anything right now, is they will not be an outlier. They just follow the crowd. Everything's getting disrupted. They can't figure things out. They're discombobulated. They're scared. They go back and put their head in the sand. And this all resonates to me, Cal, because for five years, I was diagnosed with an incurable disease, and I kept my head in the sand, and I didn't even Google it. Oh, And man. I get how they feel. Oh. And so I am just, I just, ha I want, this is all I care about, like, Go, this is your moment, because in five years, your moment's over for a lot of these businesses. There's a, a book that just came out on AI, and I'm trying to think of his name. He was on 60 Minutes a couple weeks ago. Kai Fu Lee, that's his name, Kai Fu Lee. And he said 40% of jobs in the next 10 years will be gone because of AI. And it's not that there's going to be 60 jobs and they're just going to 60% of jobs in the world are just going to stay the same. They're all going to be adapting to what's going on. The technology. I'll give you an example. Construction industry. Last year at South by Southwest, they 3d printed a house in 24 hours. And it cost $10,000 in China last year, Japan, they 3d printed a 4,000 square foot home in a month that could withstand an 8.0 earthquake. So what happens to insurance companies now that are billing out the wazoo wow. for, and I'm in Hurricane Alley in Florida, that's where I live. Like if I have a house that's hurricane proof, what, what happens to the construction worker that can't build the house anymore? What happens to the construction companies that don't have 3D printing? There are industries that are gonna be disrupted all over the place. 
And I talk about in the book, you know, about um, autonomous cars, but it's not that autonomous cars are coming. It is the second and third order consequences. Like what a, when you have cars that don't speed anymore, what happens to governments that are collecting speeding tickets? What, yeah, what happens to people on organ donor lists when they're no more no accidents. car deaths? 35,000 car deaths a year. That'll come down to 300. We don't need insurance. You don't need insurance. You don't need those uh, ambulance chasing lawyers anymore either. And so there are second and third order consequences of everything going on right now. And this is the moment to go and do something about that if you're a business owner. I feel like this is the beginning of a beautiful friendship. Oh, I like that. That makes me happy. So you're going to stick around for a while. Take care of that esophagus. (laughs) And we're going to be friends. I like that. And we're going to have a meal together. I don't know what that's going to be like, but... Uh, two guys uh, with faulty esophaguses. Uh, it'll be a lectin-free meal. <laughs> <laughs> I just want to say thank you. This is a fascinating talk and learned yeah. a lot. And not only that, but you really have empowered me because, I, as I told you, I walked out of that conference and I said, this is where I have to be. I can help these people. I can tell stories. Yeah, They need me. And I'm going. And to listen to you, it was like a, a, a hurricane at my back. Actually, it wasn't a hurricane because then it would, I'd have been floating all over the place. It was really straight wind saying, go forth, Cal. Mm-hmm. So I want to just say thank you. No, you, you're holding the secret sauce. I'm dead serious. Like, you hold the secret sauce. And if people just understood that that's the only thing that will remain after this hurricane passes through they would adapt. But right now, people are fat and happy. The secret sauce. Storytelling. Storytelling. Thank you, brother. Thank you. I'm honored to be here. And this is not going to be the first time. We'll look forward to it. Cheers. Cheers. That about wraps it up. want to thank Tim Ferriss for nudging me to start this podcast. Like I always say, when in doubt, Just do what Tim says. Also want to thank Philip and remind you of his book, Fire Them Now, The Seven Lies Digital Marketers Sell. And I want to give some gratitude to my sponsors for bringing this to you. That means we work where company meets community. Whatever type of office space you need, WeWork's got it. Just go to www.we.co slash cow to get a 20% discount and enjoy. And Sportique. If you're a regular listener, you know I do my intros while I wear my Sportique hoodies and sweats. That's because they make me feel comfortable. To find out just how comfortable, go to Sportique.com, S-P-O-R-T-I-Q-E, and use the offer code CAL for a 20% discount. You'll be glad you did. Don't forget to shoot me a photo of the city or town where you listen to big questions. Really makes my day. Until next week, cheers. Cheers.